I'm Pete Seligman. Welcome to Season 3 of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, the Australian ETA and Search Fund community is looking forward to its first big event for the region. The ETA Forum will be held at the Manly Pacific Hotel on Manly Beach in Sydney on Friday the 16th of September. In the lead up to the event, I'll be interviewing the speakers and moderators to give you some insight into the experience, capability and knowledge that will be on offer when we all come together for the first time. Please stay tuned as we count down the days and be sure to yell out if you have any questions or comments to offer so we can make the ETA Forum a great event for all involved. Now let's jump into this episode of The Next Step. Cultural fluency is really important. What that means in practice, you know, how you approach conversations, you know, when you ask about price, whatever the tactics of it are, I think I think differ in, in different really important ways. You know, what it takes to approach an owner in Egypt is very different to Germany, for example. So you bring different approaches and we talk a lot to our searchers about the strategy, but the fundamental value proposition is conserved across those cultures. The attributes of a good business are also conserved, just how the industry fit those and what changes. In this episode of The Next Step, I speak to Andrew Locke, co-founder and partner at Ambit Partners, a dedicated search fund investor based in South Africa. They've already in the last 12 to 18 months invested in over 35 search funds globally, seven of which have been in brand new search fund markets. And they've already made investments in six operating entities as a result of those searches. And so when it comes to investing in search, Andrew and his team, they know a fair bit about the topic. And so luckily we've secured Andrew to come to the Search Fund ETA Forum in Sydney in September this year to talk to us on exactly that topic. He's gonna be looking at search funds as an asset class and looking at why as an investor, you would make a decision to put your money into a search fund alongside other assets in your portfolio. So I get a bit of an update from Andrew on the progress in Ambit Partners over the last few months. And then we start to talk a little bit about the questions and topics and kind of issues and ideas he wants to cover in the session that he'll be holding at the ETA Forum in Sydney in September this year. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, Andrew, or in your case, good morning. And thanks very much for joining me on this episode of The Next Step. Hey, Pete. Yeah, pleasure to chat. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Obviously, we've done an episode a little while ago in which you'll talk about your backstory and those things. So I can put a link to that in the show notes. But before we start talking about the forum later in September, it'd be great to get an update from you on how things are going at Ambit. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great to to talk again. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was that we first spoke, but you know, I think since that conversation, yeah, the, the business has grown in kind of a number of ways. We're now in a little under 35 search funds. We're in 21 countries and um, six continents. So we're, we're building out the, the global side of the portfolio, which has been exciting to see. We're seeing really strong searchers come to market in different geographies. Um, I think we're in six or seven uh, search funds that are the first to ever go um, in the country that they're operating in, which is, which is quite exciting for us. Um, so that's been great. And we're, we're seeing you know, the first set of investments we made about two years ago uh, mature, find businesses and, and make acquisitions. So uh, of our portfolio, we've um, seen and participated in four acquisitions. Uh, we've also done two uh, gap acquisitions. So search funds that we were not in the original search investment, but um, at acquisition, we stepped in and took a piece of the equity equity check um, uh, when, when the searcher bought the company. So um, yeah, signing across uh, all fronts there. Yeah, fantastic. And and so you and the team must be pretty happy with that progress. Is is that kind of mapping to what you would have expected in terms of kind of rolling out those investments 
um, both in terms of the volume, but also those locations? Is it kind of going relatively well planned? Yeah, I think it does map fairly closely to you know the, the broad sketches we made um, when we founded the business. It's you know, we take a very searcher first approach, so we uh, we essentially follow where great searchers lead. Uh, they're, they're the tip of the spear on, on you know the whole process. Um, so we're you know, generally comfortable investing anywhere where there's a, a really talented searcher search pair uh, and a compelling commercial argument for the for the country itself. Um, so we, we don't, of course, kind of push or, or particularly search out searcher, searchers in different markets. Um, but that said, yeah, we're seeing seeing quite a uh, kind of spectrum and diversity of searchers come to market in different geographies around the world, uh, and in, including you know many in the more traditional spaces as well in the U.S. and, and Spain, uh, Mexico um, have have increased their search activity as well. So it's been. Uh, quite an interesting time to see the search fund industry broadly become more popular and expand, but particularly in, uh, in new markets and emerging markets uh, that we focus on. Fantastic. And what have you, I was reading the latest Stanford study and, and one of the stats that's always interesting to look at is that split between the sole searcher and the partnered search. W what are you finding in relation to um, not only what you're seeing, but then what you're ending up putting your investment behind is have you got a relatively even split between the two or are you finding more partnered searches or more singles? What what are you seeing at the moment? Yeah, you know, I think what we see is likely, I would say slightly more solo searches come to market. Um, as an investor, we have, I would say, a, a slight preference for, for partnered searches. I think that's based on, you know, the, the figures we're quoting. There's, there's increasingly robust evidence that the, there's an advantage to being a paired search. There's also quite a bit, you know, just from our own experience as investors, you know, a lot of anecdotes around um, the ways in which having a partner can ease some of the stress of, of a search. Um, both just, you know, it's a very difficult career path. It's a lot of highs and lows, um, successes and failures every day. So it's, it's nice to have a partner, I think, just to manage that. It's also just a lot of work to manage as a single person. So, you know, you know I think the classic example is when, you have a deal on the line, you're through LOI, you're looking to make an acquisition, but you also need to keep the top of the funnel full. That's very difficult to do. Um, people do it all the time, but it's hard as, 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 a, as a solo searcher. Um, so we, we see in our own portfolio that I think a lot of those uh, stressors can be, be mitigated. Um, when you're uh, going for the first time in a new market, uh, it's, it's, it's very unlikely you're going to find a partner at the right time, right person, right, right skill set. It's easier to find that in a more crowded market uh, where there's more people who want to search to find that, that appropriate partner. So we're comfortable doing both, but we certainly see kind of in our day-to-day -day the advantages of a partner search. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the fact that quite a few of the investments you've made in that search phase have been in new markets. Um, what have you seen in the last kind of 12, 24 months in relation to the expansion of search as an asset class um, globally? Yeah, you know, I think there's it's increased across all geographies, and I think the the new search fund study you mentioned shows that um, there's now hundreds of searches being raised you know, every year, um, and it's great to see you know, the type of person that can go into search and the type of geography that investors have appetite for expand and, and grow beyond the original kind of boundaries in North America and Western Europe, because we certainly see really compelling arguments. Um, Commercially, as an investor, to go in the new markets, there's a few good reasons for that. 
Um, we also see it as this is a very interesting career path for you know, operators who want to buy companies, uh, particularly those who want to go do it in, in their in their home markets where they, where they grew up, where their families are. Um, so our, we really believe that if you if you want to go buy a company, you should be able to anywhere in the world. Um, if you're clever enough to do it, motivated to do it, um, and your country has a strong enough commercial argument for it. So it's cool to see searchers see that, uh, you know, they, they lead a lot of that work. So we say that, you know, the best searchers, they're far more exposed to any geography than we are as, as, an, as an investor with a portfolio of investments. So the, uh, you know, the, the person needs to be really convinced on the quality of the market is the searcher first. And they do a lot of that work. So we see, as we see, you know, great, really clever operators um, expand and look at new places. Um, do a lot of that upfront work to understand the, the attractiveness of the new market. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I'm interested when search makes its way into a new market as to whether or not some of those fundamentals, not only from a technical perspective, but also from a, uh, I guess, a cultural perspective, translate to those new markets, not only across kind of language boundaries, but also across cultural boundaries. Uh, are you seeing that when, yes. when, when the search model makes its way into a new jurisdiction, is it dragging, well, hopefully it is, but is it dragging um, the best of search, whatever that might be from a characteristic perspective mm -hmm. into those new markets? Are you seeing that translate? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot there. You know, each, each geography, each country and each economy has a, you know, a different set of characteristics that makes different types of businesses more attractive in that space. So um, we're quite pedantic about business model. We're, we're more agnostic around industry. Uh, and part of that is because we know that you know, what makes sense as a search industry in the U.S. doesn't necessarily make sense as a search industry in, in Paraguay or Ivory Coast or New Zealand. So there's, you know, I think you need to be flexible there, but uh, adhere to the, the core tenets of search um, as far as business model goes. So we, we do see, you know, different types of businesses, um, but those businesses do exist in different different spaces. Um, we see particular opportunity actually in, in software, especially in the emerging markets where the penetration of, of, of SaaS is, is much lower, um, but the trajectory of the evolution of those markets is fairly known, or at least you can predict it a bit by looking at, at, at more um, similar but more developed uh, economies. So we, we see a lot of interesting application there. Um, in terms of sort of the, the cultural alignment, and, and I think that, that really does vary. Part of our thesis is we, we almost always back uh, locals who you know, have to define the people who are you know, fluent in, in the culture and the language and the business environment. Um, it doesn't mean they've worked their whole career there, but, but someone who can step in and, and, and fundamentally meet the typical value proposition of search, which is this is the, the air, the succession solution that you, uh, that you don't have, right? The son or daughter you kind of wish to inherit the business, somebody you can really connect to and, and carry on that legacy. And, I think having a cultural fluency is really important. What that means in practice, you know, how you approach conversations, you know, when you ask about price, whatever the tactics of it are, I think I think differ in, in different really important ways. You know, what it takes to approach an owner in Egypt is very different to Germany, for example. So you bring different approaches, and then we talk a lot to our searchers about those strategies. But the fundamental value proposition is conserved across those cultures. The attributes of a good business are also conserved. Just how the industries fit those is what changes. It's interesting you talk about cultural fluency. I think that's a really good way of describing it because even if you can speak the language, doesn't mean you can speak the culture. And and I know that it just mm. as a, a completely aside, as an example, I know that for businesses that um, try to, for example, make their way from Australia to America, 
um, people mm-hmm. think that because you're speaking the same language that actually everything's just going to translate perfectly. But there's a very yep. different culture um, and also a very different business culture in many ways uh, between Australia and, and the US, for example, but even between Australia and various states within the US. And so cultural fluency is, is a really important one, which is, which, like you say, is probably one of those benefits of search because the searcher themselves is probably... Um, as an individual, got some of that fluency they can bring to the table. Yep. And so, one of the, I mean, the the topic that you've kindly offered to um to be involved with at the forum coming up in September here in Sydney um, is in relation to exactly that concept of of making an investment in search and what is search from the, through the investor lens. Um, and we're talking about you know how it might compare as an asset class mm-hmm. to other potential investors investments that an investor could make. Um, what's your early thinking on um, the kind of things you might try and hit on in that session and um, what's your perspective on it as an asset class, given that you've had experience across other other factors and also have spent a bunch of time thinking about it as an investor and, and what are the pros and cons? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so I think when we talk about search investing, one of the, I think, the distinguishing features of, of search from an investor perspective relative to other types of private equity is that and how collaborative um, the, the cap tables typically are. So it's, it's not a, as many of your audience likely knows, it's, it's not a captive cap table in a, in a traditional search fund structure. It's generally between 10 to at most uh, 20 uh, all minority investors who, who support the searcher and um, provide different types of support from their own experience and expertise. So you build a, a cap table that is as holistically supportive and, and uh, experiences as you can just to, create an environment where the searcher has the maximum chance of, of success. So that gives us, I think, because we've been on many cap tables, a view on different types of investors that that come into search and what they what they offer. Um, I think the first sort of dichotomy to make is between investing directly in a search fund, where you're the, the direct investor on the search cap table versus investing indirectly, where you get exposure to search, but, but buy a, a fund. Um, each of those have you know, advantages and disadvantages. Uh, so it depends on your appetite and interest and um, kind of what type of exposure you're looking to have. On, on, on the direct side, I think it might be the biggest advantage people who invest directly will tell you is you get to work directly with searchers, which can be a lot of fun. It's a very, you know, it's a very it's a people first business. Uh, and other reason why we do it, it's a lot of fun to, to work directly with searchers and help do great deals and, and track them through their operational journey as well. Um, it also means you can potentially influence the, the search a bit by providing advice and um, hopefully, you know, improving the uh, likelihood of success and the likelihood of a great acquisition by providing your own uh, expertise of some some sort on the, on that cap table. Um, and then you have, you know, also if you invest directly, then you have the direct decision at acquisition whether you want to participate or not. So you can have, have more autonomy and uh choice over the portfolio that you're building in search. Also, of course, you, you avoid any, any management fees um, because you're investing directly. So you're building your own portfolio or you're not, you're not behind a layer up on a, on a fund. Um, but then the other side, kind of the disadvantages and risks of it, one is that you're likely more concentrated on just a few assets. So there's, and this is something that um, we'll, I think, in deeper in, on, the, uh, on the session, but how to think about the risk profile of search and how to think about your own portfolio and how diversification matters and, and your, your returns. 
Um, and also to be aware of is this idea of adverse selection. There's a lot of searches raised in the market. Uh, the good ones typically raise very quickly. Um, so if you know if you do want to build your own private portfolio, um, make sure that you I think understand how to access kind of the, the best deal flow essentially to the top top talent and making sure that um, you're building a great portfolio for yourself and then you, you bring a real value add to the search um, that will attract the best searchers to you. It's a bit like venture capital. You can't, it's not really just, just the, the check. You also need to bring something else that the, the top top talent will, will, will value um, to bring you on as, as an investor. Um, and then the, uh, on the inverse side, on, on you know, going indirect via fund, the advantages are you're much more diversified. You have access to you know, 20 to 30 acquisitions instead of you know, a smaller number, depending on um, how much you're looking to invest. Um, and typically, you know, you're more likely to be in, 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 a, in, a, in a top search funds, the most talented search funds, because it's, you know, funds will spend all their time trying to trying to figure out who those are, um, which is going to be harder as an individual investor. Um, but on the other hand, you, know, you, you do pay some fees on top of that, and then you're passive, so you don't you see all the activity through the layer of the fund, which for some investors makes a lot of sense. But people who want to have direct, you know, be more active, uh, have it be you know support and mentor searchers as they go, then that can be a real uh, advantage of going direct. So that's typically how we talk about how do you get exposure? Do you want to invest yourself? Do you want to go um, uh, buy a fund? Um, and then to your, your question about why, you know, why do you either? <laughs> why is search generally a attractive space to be in? I think that you know, from, from the commercial perspective, uh, it offers a really attractive kind of risk return profile relative to other, other uh, types of investments. Um, it brings kind of conservative downside protection of private equity. You're buying stable businesses, um, usually medium to high growth, good margins, long track record of success. They're, they're companies that have passed what we sometimes call the, the concept risk chasm, right? So, so many businesses fail as they try to find a product market fit. That's why startups are so, so difficult. These companies, you know, with a few exceptions, but, you know, at Ambit, we likely wouldn't, um, participate in, in too, too much of a startup um, business. Typically, you buy an established company with a strong track record that's past that concept risk chasm. Um, on the other hand, you've conserved a lot of the upside potential usually uh, reserved for, for venture capital. These are small businesses. Usually, they have great growth potential. We look for that. Um, oftentimes, we, we see more and more SaaS businesses. Um, so it's not uncommon if you look at, for example, the Stanford data you were discussing just to see you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 times outcomes. They're, they're rare, but they're not uh, unheard of. Which, and part of that is, is why diversification can matter. You want to be part of those, those great returns if you can. Um, so, so overall, as an industry, uh, search funds have consistently returned about two times um, venture capital and, and private equity. Um, and, and medium search funds continue to outperform even top decile PE funds. Um, so it's, it's been quite a commercially lucrative space to be in. Um, and all while keeping a somewhat lower risk profile. There's a, of acquisitions fewer than eight uh, percent will will go to zero, will, will fail, which compared to venture capital is, is a very high hit rate. And so the risk profile is lower. There's more stability there, but a lot of the upside potential is um, is, is conserved. And then I guess the, the, the final question. Go ahead. So I was just going to say, like, like to, to me, and I mean. Like effectively preaching to the converted, right? Like uh, I'm definitely on the inside of that of that yeah. club, and and really enjoying being part of that process and and investing in search myself. But w- what do you find? 
is that if you've got an investor that's either potentially going to invest in a fund like yours or invest directly alongside, um, but they're not quite sold yet, there's something that concerns them. Well, what do you think are the uh, are usually the biggest detractors or the things that are the final hurdle that's just one mm. hurdle too many that that might stop an investor from getting involved in search? What, what do you find is the most common thing mm. that stops people from doing it? Because a lot of those metrics, as you say, are great. So what do you find are the things that might stop someone from investing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that if I were to pick maybe two or three uh, pieces of the model that new investors to the space are concerned about. I think one is understanding the importance of the search period. So searches will search for two years when they buy a business. And part of our initial investment in the search phase pays, for example, their salary, their healthcare, things like that. So searches, so investors to us will say, why pay searchers to go look for a company and wait up to two years for that company to come to you? Why not tell them to go fund it themselves and bring you a final product? Which I think is a fair question. Um, but you know, I guess the quick, the short answer to that is that you get far better businesses if you can devote yourself full time to searching. You find yeah. you search on the side of your desk while you're working your private equity job. So mm. you find better companies um, through that. Um, and you get to, those searchers get to work with experienced investors who bought dozens of companies themselves to help direct them towards a better outcome. Um, and then from the investor side, we get to work very closely with the searchers to understand their quality as well and how we see them as CEOs post-acquisition. So a lot of value is actually exposed and directed during that, that, that search period. I think a second piece um, is, um, is the idea of an unproven CEO stepping into the, the CEO seat. Mm. So the typical profile for search um, is, uh, is younger. Searchers that you know, typically kind of late twenties, early to mid thirties, you know, some tails either side, but it's, it's rare for a searcher to have been a CEO prior to um, to raising their searches. Usually, that's the first time in the seat. Um, and those you know, they typically have MBAs, though not always. So we do, we do hear um, investors question if that's the best profile um, for it. And, and frankly, from our perspective, we're a bit agnostic to that. We think that certainly it's been shown that this profile can do well. Whether you need the profile to do well, I think is, is another question. We're seeing a, a more diversity in the in the in the profile um, of searchers. So slightly older searchers, more operational experience. So it'd be interesting to see how how those profiles work out. And then maybe the the third piece uh, is this idea of being a minority on the cap table. So we target typically about 10% of both the search and the acquisition. Uh, we pay very close attention to who else is on the cap table with us. We, we know, you know other investors, we have conversations with all the you know, local sort of one-off investors for the searcher, but not the model. We've talked to them before we make our final commitments so we, we understand who we're investing alongside. Uh, and that's that's quite important because that, that's the, there's a lot of path dependency when you build that cap table. That's the, the, most of the advice you'll get during the search. Um, and also the, the, the primary pool for both your investors and also your board members at, at acquisition. So we, we want to make sure it's a very strong um, cap table uh, from the very beginning. But investors who are used to traditional private equity are, are you know, used to you know, majority or at least very significant minority stakes where you have control, mm. where the, the, the investor can come in and, 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 and direct things um, with, with a little more authority than, than you get in search, which is more collaborative, more searcher-led, 
Um, it's not as much one one private equity fund coming in, rebuilding the management team, and yeah, uh, you know, making all the decisions for the business. It's, it's not that style of private equity. So those are a few few of the ways in which the model uh, differs from what you know, a lot of investors have seen. Um, um, but we think in, in very important ways that actually uh, are things that instead of being the way of success, actually, uh, yeah, are somehow contributing towards it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the, like, you know, at the forum that we've got coming up in September, we're, we're looking forward to catering for a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. So those that um, are either thinking about search or are already active in search, um, but also catering to um, the investors in search, uh, both those that are active, but also I'm hoping that we can get um, a bunch of investors who are considering making that investment in search for the first time. And so it'd be excellent to have your session there because it'll inspire a bunch of conversation between those existing investors who have a bunch of different perspectives on why they've come to invest in search in the first place. Um, but also it'll be a real benefit to those investors who potentially invest in a range of different asset classes right now, um, but are thinking about search as an addition to their portfolio. And so um, your session really honing in on what does it mean to be an investor in search? Why would you do it? What are the pros and cons and why might it be a good fit? Um, will be really, really valuable. So thank you very much for offering to do that. Um, we're coming to the end of the episode now, but just before we wrap up, um, you know, really looking forward to seeing you in September. Um, anything else that you're hoping to get out of the conference when you when you come for the visit? Mm. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the, the top is just being able to meet all the people we know in person. I think it's, it's a small community in search. It's, and the number of investors and searchers, you know, I think, I think most of us are aware of each other and have, Many have had conversations on Zoom for the last couple of years, particularly us, and we built our business from South Africa on, um, on video calls. And, and so it's, it's going to be a real pleasure to have these conversations in person. You mentioned at the beginning, you know, travel is picking up again. We've had a bit of that to date, and it's just such a different experience to talk through these ideas in person than the podcast over Zoom. So I think that's going to be a real pleasure. So I have to flip it around, we want to thank you for taking such a lead in the space. And um, I think APAC is, is growing a lot. We're seeing a lot of really interesting activity there. So it's going to be just a lot of fun, a real pleasure to meet the different players in the market. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much again for your time today, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the offer of coming to speak to us in September. I look forward to seeing you there. I was at the venue earlier today and it's looking great. So I look forward to sharing a drink with you on the balcony when September rolls around. Likewise. Look forward to it. Thanks, Pete. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Next Step. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're joining us at the 2022 ETA Forum in Manly, I look forward to seeing you there. If you haven't already bought a ticket and this episode lit the spark, please head to etaforum.com.au to book your place and we'll see you in September.